Father in heaven, as once again we take up our study, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be present here and that from our time here we learn more about you, but more also about ourselves. In the time in which we live and the issues that we face in this day and age, may the exodus, the type, help us to understand the antitype, the last days in which we live in the Advent movement. Pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A couple of general comments as uh, we're beginning our uh, study today. And that is that as we go through this study in the next uh, the few days that remain, ask yourself some key questions in relationship to being a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. You know, a lot of people will accuse you, because you're a Seventh-day Adventist, that um, you, uh, you're a legalist and that you don't really believe in righteousness by faith. You believe in righteousness by works, that you are a, um, that you, you, you see salvation in the Sabbath. By keeping the Sabbath, you're earning your way to heaven. You're, you know, those kinds of things. As you study the experience of the Exodus, and we're gonna look at some of that a little bit today, but not only today, but as we continue on, keep asking yourself, where is the message of righteousness by faith in this study? Where is the message of righteousness by faith in this journey of the children of Israel out of Exodus? I'm gonna give you a, an overall blank, blanket statement. Did the children of Israel get themselves out of Egypt? Or did someone else get them out of Egypt? God got them out of Egypt, right? The, the change of being from captive uh, in, in the captivity of the Pharaoh. Um, no, it's different material. Uh, this, the uh, captive people in, in Egypt had the experience of being slaves. And when Moses tried to help them get out of Egypt, the first time, you remember the first time? What happened? It fell flat on his face. It, he fell flat on his face, and he had to run for his life, and it took him 40 years to get that out of his system. Okay. So you start to ask, as you look at this, you begin to realize that this whole movement of the children of Israel of Exodus, uh, in the Exodus and coming out of Israel, was a movement that demonstrates that we do not save ourselves and that we're dependent upon God at every stage. So look at the details as we go through this and ask yourself, what does this teach me about my relationship with Jesus and righteousness by faith? And then also ask yourself the question, if I'm not saved by myself and by my own actions, where do my actions fit into this situation? Why is it that I should respond to God and if I don't respond, what is the end result of that? And you're asking these questions because you want to say, wait a minute, what is God telling me about the last days? Remember what happened after the children of Israel 
got out of Egypt immediately after they got out of Egypt, what was the next thing that happened? They were chased. Okay? They, they were chased. What's going to happen at the end of time? You know, we were close to being out of Egypt, but we had to come out of somewhere before that. We'll talk about that. You begin to look at these parallels and you begin to realize that there is a deeper lesson that God is trying to teach us. It's not just about coming out of Egypt. It's not just about plagues that hit Egypt. This is not just a history lesson. It is an illustration of God's working in our lives and what He's trying to get out of us. And it's going to come clearer as we get into our study today. So the first chapter that we're going to look at today is the Law and the Sabbath. And uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 4, verses 22-23. The first passages that are there. A lot of passages in here. I hope you'll go back and as you review this material, you look at all the Bible verses. But the time doesn't allow us to do all of that. We have to kind of work our way back through it. But go to Exodus chapter uh, 4, verse 22 and 23. And as we did yesterday, let's do some reading together here. Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 22 and 23. So someone read verses 22 and 23 of chapter 4. And now we shall say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son. Kind of an interesting perspective here, right? If you please, God is laying down the law to Pharaoh, isn't he? He's reminding him that, you know, you think you're in charge, but I'm the one who's really in charge, right? I'm in control of the situation. And what I'm telling you, Pharaoh, is to let my people go. And then uh, he says, if you refuse, there are going to be consequences. The law was established and laid down. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Again, Exodus, this time chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. What does he say? Let my people go. There's a great song like that, right? They, that they may do what? That they may serve me. See, the children of Israel had a problem. The problem is they were slaves. That's a problem, isn't it? Typically, a slave has to do what in relationship to the master? Follow, obey, do what the master says. And typically, the slavery, a person who was involved or, or captured in slavery, had no life of their own, no control of their own, right? Every breath they took, every job they did, every moment they spent was dictated by the master. 
They didn't have to, they didn't have the opportunity to make any personal choices. And that's the key to what we're looking at today. The slavery that they were involved with led them into not just physical slavery and captivity, but they also were enslaved to the world. The notes there from, uh, from our lesson, and I'm going to hit again some of the highlights. In the first paragraph under those Bible verses, the second sentence says, while in bondage, they were serving man instead of God and were therefore for guilty of idolatry. Now, you and I are privileged to be in the United States, and slavery more, slavery more or less is banished and gone, although you hear a lot now today about um, slaves, uh, women being you know, brought into slavery, sexual slavery, all that kind of thing that seems to have a resurgence. But aside from that, we basically are free people, right? But the truth is, most of us, have to answer the question, who are we really serving? Ourselves, man, or God? And when we get into slavery, we realize that the world we're living in right now is, we're enslaved, enslaved to the world. I'm enslaved to this silly computer. You know, um, I don't worship it, but I'm just saying there are a lot of things that control our lives, right? But while in bondage, they were serving man instead of God and therefore guilty of idolatry. Now, naturally, the experience of being slaves left them in a very difficult position because they weren't able to make choices. When they came down from, from, uh, uh, from the north and came into captivity, I should say, they came into Egypt originally, who was leading the way? Who, who led the way into Egypt? Joseph led the way into Egypt. But he came as a slave, didn't he? And he didn't have a lot of choices about what was going on, but he stood up for God. But eventually God stood up for him, used him in the way that he had intended to and in bringing him there in the first place and was able to save him, him and his family from the famine that came, right? So that's when the people came into captivity, all of which was... As we talked about yesterday, no, we didn't talk about this yesterday. We're going to talk about it later. Um, all of which was predicted in prophecy. And they were there for a period of time. They were going to be there for a period of time. God used that as an opportunity to save them from that family, brought them into that place. There's a lot of questions we can ask about why didn't God just feed them where they were and all. But God had His plan. God has... God is always trying to spread the gospel message. He's always trying to get the word out to everybody. There's all these kinds of things are going on. We like to second guess God, but God is in charge. And God has a reason for what he's doing and what he's trying to accomplish. Some of that's going to come out today. But here they are in captivity. And they came down as Sabbath worshipers, correct? They came down as commandment keepers, correct? But when they got into slavery and the world got control of them and Pharaoh got control of their place, the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, what began to happen to them? They began to move away from obedience to the commandments because Pharaoh expected them to keep working, not keep the Sabbath, right? 
Yes, please. So when he caused them to have to gather their own wheat after the miracle, mm -hmm. I thought that was one of the reasons they were angry was because they had to do it on Sabbath in order to continue their production. At least that was my understanding, is that they that that they were still some of them were still trying to keep the Sabbath. Certainly that's true, and it's exactly it. But for four hundred years they had wandered away from the Sabbath, and most of them had long since given up on that. They were all, they're always, in my morning devotions right now, I'm going through the experience of Elijah. And Elijah, what did he think when he got caught, not, not caught, when he ran for his life after Jezebel threatened his life? What did he do? He ran and hid, and he complained to God. He said, I'm the only one left. I just won this great victory. He didn't say that. <laughs> he says, I'm the only one who stood up for you, and I'm the only one here, and I'm the only one left. And God says, there's 7,000 of you of people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet. So even in Egypt, there were those who hadn't, but the majority had, had done that. And there's a lesson in that, because that's, if I can jump ahead to the parallel and to the, from the type to the anti-type, isn't that what's going on with us right now? Okay? The, the issue is we've come into the world, we, we've been called out of the world, but we're slowly finding a way to slip back into it, just as the people in Egypt as captives slipped back into it because of the press of the world, same thing is happening to us. And there are a lot of people today who have wandered away from what God expects of them in relationship to obedience, and the idolatry of the world has caught them, and they don't even realize that they're there. And that's part of it. They didn't realize they were there. But at the time when, when Moses comes into Egypt uh, with Aaron for the purpose of bringing the people out, he's trying now to teach them uh, some of these principles. You know, there's a little bit of time here. This wasn't like a one-day event, right? When you read it, there's quite a bit of time that goes by here from the time that Moses and Aaron show up to the time that that last plague uh, causes Pharaoh to say, get out of here, go away, I don't want to see you anymore. There's, I don't know if it's months, I, don't, I haven't really tried to calculate all of that, but this is a significant period of time. Some of those plagues took place over days, right? And then there's time in between, perhaps, as they're working through this process. And, and God, I mean, Moses and Aaron are counseling with the elders and, and trying to work through that. So at that time, you can be sure Moses is trying to bring them back to an understanding of the true things. And, and then, sure, they wanted to keep the Sabbath, and, Mo, and Pharaoh gets angry, and he starts making things tougher for them. So that's all that's going on. That's a very good point, and thank you for bringing it out. Um, the interesting connection is here is that in our own time, what does the Bible in Revelation tell us about the time in which you and I live and the kinds of things that we will face in this time? Revelation, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation. Wars and rumors of wars and, and uh, uh, persecution and people dying because of all of that. Look at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Someone read verse 3, please. Revelation 3. Uh, 12, verse 3. Mm -hmm. 
Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. All right, who is the dragon? How do you know that? Because verse 9. Okay. Because verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So we don't have to make it up, right? We know the answer to that. Satan is the dragon. In chapter 13, there's an interesting thing that begins to happen. In chapter 13, we see a beast rising up out of the sea, verse 1, correct? Yep. Still with me? And then it says that in verse 4, so they worship the what? who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is the beast who is able to make war with him? The dragon is always behind everything, isn't he? Yeah. Satan is always behind everything. When God's people are brought into Egypt and then enslaved, come into slavery and cannot uh, follow what God wants them to do or, or appear that they can't, and they fall into that, that issue, Who's trying to take that captivity and control that situation? Who is? The dragon. the dragon is. Satan is the one who's trying to do that. And what is he trying to get them to do? He's trying to get them to now be obedient to whom? To him. And he has gods there of all kinds, doesn't he? And who are some of those gods? Ra is one of those gods, right? And who's Ra? He's the sun god. So Satan is always trying to get worship drawn to him and, and getting man to follow men's ways and ultimately to follow Satan's ways. That's always what's happening. So the slavery in Egypt is, an, uh, is a type of the slavery that we find ourselves in by being enslaved to this world and the things that are happening in the world. And God is going to want to bring us out of that period, that uh, experience of slavery and help us with that. Now, let me make sure that I'm not trying to suggest that good, faithful Seventh-day Adventists are enslaved, okay? But what I'm saying is that this is a movement coming out of slavery, coming out of Egypt versus, or I should say, what's, our, what's Egypt today in Revelation? The world. Babylon, okay, which is a combination of Protestantism and the other things as well. So Babylon is the connection, is the, is the, is the anti-type of the type of Egypt. So you, you and I are part of a movement. Remember last, uh, yesterday I said one of the reasons we're doing this is because we want to affirm our faith, affirm our connection with God, affirm the fact that God has raised up this movement for a purpose. And as we look at this Exodus movement and begin to see that, that, that the Advent movement parallels that, we say, wait a minute, that's what God's trying to do. He's trying to prepare me just like he tried to prepare the children of Israel for his return and to live with him for eternity in the heavenly Canaan land. So that's what he's trying to accomplish for us. Stuff like that, just throwing everything amiss, so that way Satan can turn on and stick his foot in the world. So that 
Dragon is working all angles against the middle, isn't he? He's coming from every direction trying to sidetrack from that. So he makes an interesting point here that I'm going to just hit. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's interesting. I want you to notice as you go through this study, and especially when I send you the whole study, and you look at all the details, don't miss the details with him. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to agree with him in every single detail, but you will find those details to be fascinating. Look at the one in there in that first paragraph where he says, Egypt was the first of the seven heads of the great red dragon and the beast of Revelation 12, 13, and 17. Now, we just looked at Revelation 12 and 13, didn't we? Do you remember Revelation 17? You remember the connection that he's building here? The connection is with this... Uh, um, beast and has the seven heads and then it talks about the fact that there was one that wasn't and then one that is well okay let me not play that game take your Bibles <laughs> Revelation chapter 17 I'm not saying it quite right and the Bible says it the best so I'm gonna do it that way so we can get it clear here Revelation chapter 17 and we get a little picture of this uh, scarlet beast in Revelation chapter 17. And when you look at chapter 12, I mean 17 verse 9, here's where I want to be. Look at 17 verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom, because now he's explaining what, what he's seen here. The scarlet woman is sitting on this beast, and this beast has seven heads, and uh, uh, what's the word I want? Get this right. Seven heads and ten horns. I want to say that, make sure my mind wasn't scrambling that. And so now he's explaining this, right? So in verse 9 he says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. With me? There are also seven kings. Now someone read the rest of that verse. Five are fallen and one is and the other is not yet to come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Verse 11, someone else. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to position. Now, does that get you all twisted up just a little bit? Yes. Well, I'm not going to explain all of that today, okay? But I want you to give, the, this is the point that Taylor G. Bunch is making here, and I just want you to catch it and get a little bit of that background, because if I get sidetracked off into that, we'll never get through the rest. He says there, the, um, the first of the seven heads of the great red dragon and the beast of uh, Revelation 12, 13, uh, 12 and 13 and 17 is Egypt. In other words, here's what is being portrayed in Revelation 17. These are the forces that were against God's people down through the ages. And Egypt was the first of those, all right? And then you get that sequence, and that leads you down through the rest. And then you come in to, uh, to this, and you begin to see the various forces that were against. And that includes Rome, and all of that are mixed up all in those, those powers. But he's just drawing that connection. I want you to see where that connection came from. You can study that more on your own. So here is the platform that he's setting. He's telling us and reminding us that the people in Egypt as slaves and captives, the children of Israel there, 
are a type of us caught in slavery in Babylon, in the time of Babylon today, as, as, uh, as we are. So as we look at the next section on the antitype, he says God is calling his people out of modern Egypt or Babylon for the same purpose. What is that purpose? Revelation chapter 14. You're already in Revelation, so let's go to 14. I know you just went through an Unlock Revelation seminar and you have this down pat. All right? So I just want you to get the connection that we're building here in 6 and 7. Revelation 14, someone read verse 6 that hasn't read yet. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel and pre uh, to preach unto them that dwell in the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Excellent. Okay, so the, the work of the people of God at the end of time is to... Uh, is to remind us of the gospel message. That's central here. Remember righteousness by faith. You know, that connection. Now someone read verse 7. Sing with a loud voice, fear God, and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Okay, so now what's happening? The prophecy here talks about the people that would come that is us and in the time of the end and that their work would be to tell everybody that the judgment has come in other words it's already started and that they should worship god right they should worship him who made heaven the earth and the sea what does that refer to Creation and what? Yes, which reminds us to do what? Remember the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath holy, right? So here we remember that the children of Israel were caught in a situation where they had turned their back on the Sabbath because of their circumstances. I'm not telling you whether I'm following them or not. I'm just telling you the fact that they were in that position. And here the, at the end of time, the same thing is happening. God is calling His people back to the uh, truths of His Word, including the Sabbath. And so that's what's happening here. Now look at chapter 18, verse 1, because this is a theme that plays through this whole study in Revelation 18. And we didn't read it yesterday, so we want to read it today and get that firmly in our minds. I'd like to have someone read verses chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, please. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. The earth was laden with his glory. He cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen and has become the habitation of devils, and the whole of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Okay, now read verse 3, please, someone. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich the abundance of their So the statement that is made is that Babylon has fallen, we saw that in chapter 14, and uh, that the nations are drunk with the wine of her fornication. Uh, in other words, they have 
They have um, fornication here is a, a symbol of the, the false doctrine that has come in and connected um, into uh, the world and into churches and all of that. And, chapter, and verse 14, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come what? Out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. God did not forget God's people, His people, in Egypt, and He called them out of Egypt, right? God has not forgotten His people in Babylon, but He's calling them out of Babylon. You see the connection? So we give glory, Taylor G. Bunch says here, we give glory to God and serve Him by obeying Him, and obedience is worship. So in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, the Sabbath becomes a, a connection with God through our obedience to Him. Not because we're doing it to be saved, because He has saved us out of Babylon, we're responding to Him as the God who is the Creator God. We're choosing not to worship the God of man, which is Satan, but we're choosing to worship the God of heaven, who is our Creator. And He's the God of the Seventh-day Sabbath. So whether I'm worshiping on Friday or worshiping on Sunday or, or whatever, I'm worshiping, I'm worshiping the God of man. And God is trying to help me to come back to Him entirely and, and uh, completely. And there's a little bit of some of that discussion in that paragraph. I'm going to keep going here because, as usual, the clock is trying to get away from me. If you go to the next page, which is page 20, I believe at the top of the page, it says God's people... No, wait a minute, actually. Is it 21? Yeah, you know what? I started uh, working on some of this, and I did some reformatting, and but and and you getting the clean copies, and the old copies are a little off of that. So I thank you for that. I, that's why I kind of said it, and then I dawned on me. Yeah, it's a page off. God's people cannot serve Him and remain in Babylon, and so the call is given: Come out of her, my people. You see, God's people could not serve Him in Egypt. You with me? Um, yes, they could have fought it, but what would have happened to them? They would have been killed, correct? A slave is disobedient, a slave is killed. So that's not productive in the long run for God's people. I mean, all they do is get killed, and that's not what God's trying to accomplish. God wants His people to be able to freely worship, because God's people cannot worship Him in Egypt. And they can't worship Him in Babylon either. That's why He has to call them out. Um, and that's the work that He's doing. And part of that call out is obedience to His law because that's how we worship God. We worship God by being obedient to the things He's laid down for us. His day was set aside as a, as a connection between ourselves and Him every seven days. And God wants us to still be obedient to that. Now, he makes the point in the next section that the majority are in Babylon. Isn't that a challenge? It doesn't tell us that the majority are going to come out of Babylon, but the fact of the matter is the majority of God's people are in Babylon. But he's trying to call them out because that is what he is doing to prepare them for heaven. We're now He was bringing them out of 
of Egypt for the purpose of getting them ready for the promised land, right? He's doing the same today. He's calling us out of Babylon so that we're ready to go home with him. He can't just save us in Babylon. He can't just isolate us and save us. Because if God could do that, he wouldn't have had to die on the cross in the first place. Correct? Because if he can save us in Babylon, with Babylon, it's not us in Babylon that the problem is. The problem is that Babylon's in us. The problem is that we've allowed Babylon to get part of us and we can't change that. Only he can change that. But he's got to get rid of Babylon in us. You remember the old old cigarette ad for, uh, what was it, Winston or... What was the cigarette? You, you don't smoke, huh? so you don't know about that. Remember the guy was riding on the horse? That's Marlboro. Marlboro. And you can take the country out, the Marlboro out of the country, but you can take the man out of the country and not the country out of the man or whatever. I don't know. At any rate, the bottom line is you can't get Babylon out of us until we get out of Babylon. And that's what God's trying to do. The sad piece, my husband and I were kind of studying this, and we, we were looking at the come out of Babylon and we were thinking, okay, this is for the world, but this is a direct correlation with God's people. He's saying, you're in the world, you don't know you're in the world, you have to come out. And that was awakening for us to realize this is specifically for God's people at end times, not for the world, it's for us. Exactly. I wish you'd been a little closer to the recording for that, because, but let me try to repeat it a little bit. You indicated that you you and your husband had kind of looked at that and began to realize there is that call of God that we have to come out of Babylon in this time and that it's it's God working in us to be able to do that. Did I summarize that okay? More or less, okay? So a very important point is what God is trying to do for us here. So as we continue this journey, keep thinking about what is it that God's trying to get out of us and what tools is he using to be able to help us with that. Think manna. What was the tool that he was trying to use there? We're going to come back to that. Think um, water coming out of a rock. What tool was he trying to use to do that? Well, right here, the tool is he's trying to get the people back into the experience of right relationship with him and obedience to him, not by their works, but by what he's doing to get them out of captivity. He's trying to ignite that in their hearts. He's trying to develop that in their hearts. Exactly. Um, There's an interesting... um, Oh, there's an interesting point that, that he makes here. At the, in the next section, it says sign of allegiance. Well, you, all, you and as you, you know, how many of you are baptized Seventh-day Adventists in the sense that you were, not con- you were converts? That's what I really want to say. You were converts into the church, okay? Some of us grew up in the church, right? Arlene, you grew up in the church. Holly, you grew up in the church. So we, we kind of grow up that way. Marilyn, are you a convert? Yeah, okay. I couldn't remember. I just known you so long. I just always thought of you being in the, being in the church. So we we uh, we always think of it as a sign of allegiance or whatever. But he makes an interesting point at the end of the paragraph, and in, in the last paragraph, he talks about the fact that the Sabbath was placed in the very center in the Ten Commandments. That's interesting. 
Somebody actually counted the words before and after and found out that there were 146 words before and 146 words after. And uh, that the Sabbath is right in the, in the center, in the middle of, of that commandment and, and, and all. But then he says, uh, the Sabbath was placed in the center and there it is right there. And uh, uh, Clark, uh, Adam Clark, who was a, a famous uh, theologian and uh, had his own commentary, said that the law was first spoken from Sinai on the Sabbath and that Pentecost was a memorial of that event. And then the point is made that the law was placed in the center of the ark and the ark in the center of the Holy of Holies, and um, which was in the midst of the priestly tribe, which was in the midst of the camp of Israel, and the Lord placed Israel in the center of the world. That's an interesting connection, isn't it? But you know, it's really true. God is trying to bring these things out into the center. That's why when you start to hear about the Pope's encyclical in which he keeps talking about Sunday sacredness. And you begin to say, wait a minute, why is he talking about that? And why is he couching that in the, in the climate change argument and discussion? It's because God is slowly allowing this world to begin to realize that there's a war, a real war going on behind the scenes, and it's over worship, and it's coming to the head. And Satan is trying to bring Sunday to the center. And God is going to bring the Sabbath to the center. He's going to bring the law to the center. He's going to bring himself to the center again. That's not righteousness by works. That's righteousness by God slowly leading his people back to truth. Please. I'm, I'm a very simple person. But Satan is doing that. But also God... I think is working in different ways, just like Ben Carson when he was doing the running. Mm -hmm. It was to expose mm -hmm. God's word mm -hmm. and God's law. Mm -hmm. I think absolutely. I don't have any question about it. A certain place and a function. Mm -hmm. and I agree. It's a wonderful point. I'm glad you brought that out. Another way that God has brought it to the forefront. A lot of people had no clue about the Sabbath, even though there have been Jews that have been out there in that forefront. But now here's a Seventh-day Adventist. You know, what if our name was something else than Seventh-day Adventist? But the very name Seventh-day Adventist did exactly what Ellen White said God's intention for it to be the Seventh-day Adventist Church, be called the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and, and it brought to forefront the Sabbath again. Fabulous, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that point out. It's a very good point. Coming. Pardon me? Jesus warned us about it's coming. Absolutely. Matthew, matter of fact, he said, as it was before I came, when they were going, they couldn't go to the synagogue, they had to go house to house to praise God, to worship God. It's going to happen again before I come back. It's exactly what's happening right now, isn't it? So when he talks now in the next section about a memorial of creation, again, we come back to the fact that this is a sign. It's at the center, and it's also a sign. It's a sign of the sanctification process that God is working in us. And um, he points out, he says, the sign that they had been delivered from the idolatry of Egypt. The Sabbath was at the center of being a sign. What did God say in the beginning? He said in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he gave the Sabbath for what reason? that it would be 
uh, that which would sanctify his people, right? He set it aside for a holy purpose, a sanctifying purpose. The purpose of the Sabbath is not just to be a day off. It's actually to work a sanctifying experience in us. That's why when we start doing our own thing on Sabbath, we negate that uh, work that God is seeking to do in us in, in, in building in our lives a sanctifying process. We move away from God and God can't communicate with us. God can't talk to us. God can't keep us connected with Him. The Sabbath is intended to be able to do that. So the Sabbath and the Advent movement in the next section he says that the gathering of Sabbath keepers just before the coming of Christ is reflected in Isaiah 56, 2-8. I don't have time to go through that, but when you go back and look at it later, mark that and go and look at that, but you see this calling out in Isaiah of the people and, and calling them back to the Sabbath, and he points points out that that's what God is trying to do at the end of time. He is gathering the Sabbath keepers together just before he returns because he wants people to know that his house is a house of prayer, that he is the God of, of, of God's people and of worship, and he wants that to be central to them. I'm, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? Because he knew that people were going to burn away from him. And that's exactly it, which is why we need to be alerted to the kinds of things that we even see happening around us. Because just as in Egypt the people were being leavened, you know what I mean by that, they were being affected by the things that are going around them, the same thing is happening in God's church today. And this just as we are approaching the return of Christ. So God is, going to ha is, is having to call us back to the truth in, the, uh, in this matter. Now look at, uh, I'm going over to the next page, which is page 22 in my notes, which is probably 23 in yours. And I don't know exactly where it is because my computer has been doing some really interesting things of changing this. Uh, I have a, a, a separate print copy from the one that I'm working with with my notes because when I, every time I start writing in and doing it, it just jumps the stuff all over the place. So if I'm not in the same place with you, you'll understand. But there is a, um, in the section that we're just, we're in, in the Sabbath and in the Advent movement, and the last paragraph of that section, just before this title, A Separate People, there's a quotation from Ellen White. And she says, As God called the children of Israel out of Egypt, that they might keep his Sabbath, so he calls his people out of Babylon, that they may not worship the beast or his image. And the Sabbath is at the center of that call out. It's because that's where God is able to work with his people. God is calling his people to be separate. The, the challenge today is that God's people are weary of being separate. It's, it's not always comfortable to be separate. It's not always, well, you know, isn't it? You remember when you were a kid? Did you like the idea that you were different than somebody else? You know, teenagers work extra hard to be just like the rest of the teenagers, to dress like them, the popular ones, to, to, uh, to speak the way they speak, you know, to be cool <laughs> or, or whatever. 
it's kind of interesting to me as how long that term has actually stayed around and, and, and is still out. But they are all kinds of terms. I don't try to keep up with the teenagers today because their language is way beyond mine. But uh, you know what I'm saying. All of this kind of thing that we try to do. Well, the truth is God wants us to be separate because by being separate, people can begin to see something that attracts them that they want to come to. If they wanted to be like the rest of the world, they, all they have to do is be like the rest of the world. But then they look around and they say, there's got to be something better. There's got to be something different. And then they start looking around and they start seeing Seventh-day Adventists, they're different. Well, who are these people that pull out of their driveway all dressed up on, on Saturday when all the rest of us are getting uh, dressed down and going out and swimming in the pool and all that? Who are, what are these people doing? What, what are they, what's this all about? That's, that separateness is there for what God wants to accomplish. God chose Israel for a reason. They were chosen because their hearts were more inclined toward the law of God than any other people. Why did God chose Noah, choose Noah? He was a righteous man and he was inclined to follow him. He didn't pick someone that was in the world at that time and you say, I'm going to just change you. Why did he call Abraham? He called him because he was a righteous man, even though he wasn't perfect. Okay, he had some things to learn. And he, he made some mistakes along the way. But he goes to him in Ur of the Chaldees and he, and he calls him because he had a heart inclined that direction. And that's because his father Terah had, had had an inclination that way. They were still worshiping some of these other gods, but they also had a focus on the real God and he had to take what he could get. <laughs> and, and, and so he goes to Abraham and he calls them out. God is always doing that. He's choosing the people who that will be able to stand up for him and teach what needs to be taught. Um, um, Taylor Bunch says this, and I'm uh, still in, that, in the section, I should say not still, I'm in the section why God chose Israel, where he says their obedience made them a holy nation, a peculiar people, separate and distinct from all the world. Likewise, the Advent people are a little flock compared to the other religious movements and are therefore called the remnant. I asked you yesterday, are you glad to be part of the remnant and the remnant people? Go over to be the, into the next section which says Sabbath breaking. I'm going to make this point. I'm not going to read anything out of that, but I want to make this point. Sabbath breaking is the challenge of the age today. When I grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist, I would never, and I, I don't mean to step on anybody's toes or whatever, because we came here to grow, didn't we? And that's really what we're looking at here. But the children of Israel in Egypt had fallen into, had fallen into slavery, and they were, um, they were practicing the ways of the world. It's easy for us to slip back into practicing the ways of the world. It was a day when I grew when I grew up, and before that even more so, where you'd never hear of someone going out on, after church on Sabbath to go out to a restaurant to eat. And and there's something that we're going to look at here in just a moment, what Ellen White points out to us. But the point that I'm making right now is it's getting easier and easier for God's people to slip back into uh, a carelessness in relationship to the Sabbath. And Ellen White observed it. It's in the next section, Modern Israel, where she is uh, 
speaking there and she says, we must be guarded lest the lax practices that prevail among Sunday keepers shall be followed by those who profess to observe God's holy rest day. I, um, I live in Lansing. I actually live in Holt, but it's the Lansing area. And when I first moved to the Lansing area, I lived across the street from the Lansing Church in a, a subdivision over there, and uh, the conference had some parsonages over there, and some of those people from the conference lived in those, those homes, and one of them was ours. And behind us was an open, uh, open field that eventually was being developed, and, and while we were there, was being developed into a, a new subdivision. And they built a, built a house uh, kind of kitty corner from where we were, and, and that house was there for a little while, and, um, and then it went up for sale. It was an interesting looking house, so I decided to go to that house, and, 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 and uh, they had an open house, and so I kind of went through that house to kind of see it. The people weren't living there at the time and, and saw this, and a couple of things that are interesting in that. This particular house had something you don't find in a lot of places. One of, what it had was a prayer closet. And I know that because the real estate agent who was there and was sharing a little bit was a Baptist, but he was a fundamental Baptist. And I confess that up to that point, I'd never really understood what a fundamental Baptist was. I figured that was just a Baptist who believed in the fundamentals of the, you know, whatever, just another Baptist. But when I talked to him a little bit about what he believed and that kind of, fundamental Baptist is a really strict Baptist. They don't go to the restaurant after church on Sunday, okay? They don't have televisions in their homes. They don't, I mean, I started thinking about that. Yeah, that sounds like a Seventh-day Adventist. (laughs) You know, there are people who are very serious about their relationship with God. We should be serious about our relationship with God. Why? Because of what that means to us. Ellen White continues here and she says, the line of demarcation is to be made clear and distinct between those who bear the mark of God's kingdom and those who bear the sign of the kingdom of rebellion. Far more sacredness is attached to the Sabbath than is given it by many professed Sabbath keepers. The Lord has been greatly dishonored by those who have not kept the Sabbath according to the commandment, either in the letter or in the spirit. He calls for a reform in the observance of the Sabbath. We are to understand its spiritual bearing upon all the transactions of life. All who regard the Sabbath as a sign between them and God, showing that he is the God who sanctifies... What? Showing that he is the God who sanctifies them, will represent the principles of his government. They will bring into daily practice the laws of his kingdom. Daily it will be their prayer that the, what? Sanctification of the Sabbath will rest upon them. Don't miss this critical point in relationship to the Sabbath, this critical point in the Advent movement, this critical point in looking back at the type of the children of Israel being called out of Egypt. God is wanting to sanctify His people. That's the purpose of the Sabbath, is to sanctify us. That's why when I, when I talk about not going out to eat at a restaurant on Sabbath, why am I saying that? Because 
Legalistically, if you're keeping a check mark of the things that are good and bad, you want to make sure you got enough check marks in relationship to the Sabbath. What? No. Because this is an issue of my relationship with Jesus. This is an issue of my connection with God. He is the one who's in charge of my life and who cares about me. And I want to be in such a relationship with him that he can continue to change me from the inside out. And when I'm continuing to associate with the things of the world and the time when he's telling me it's his sacred time to be working in my life, I'm taking control of my life And instead of this being salvation by faith, I'm trying to save myself by my own works and what I think's okay. That makes sense? There's a sanctifying power in the Sabbath that God wants us to understand, and that's what's being brought out here. Okay, please. There's an interesting connection to numerous places in Scripture where the number is used in various ways. One of them is like great Babylon sins come up around before God, or I will remember your sins and iniquities no more, and stuff like that. And all of that simply means that when remembrance is mentioned, it means the time to take action regarding the item is here. Well, then you go back to the fourth commandment remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That means it's a continuous time of action. To, to respond to the item in question. So I, I think that it means more than just you come screeching to a halt with the world at 6 p.m. Friday and mm-hmm. sunsets at 6.01. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a, a living experience. It's a remembering in a sense of it's time to take action. I'm just going to repeat that real quickly here for the tape so that the people don't get that dead space without recognizing what that, what you were saying. Basically, you, summarizing your point, you're saying that remembrance is, a, is an action word that is calling people to response and to action. It's not just a, 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 a saying, all right, now stop what you're doing, but it's a calling to that. And if I add to that, it's a calling to also the experience of sanctification that God's leading you to. Good point. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's the Spirit of God working in us, and He's bringing out that change. So I'm not keeping the Sabbath to be saved. I'm keeping the Sabbath because I want to allow God to be working in my heart and to be able to continue to do that. The next section is on the commandments of God, and I want to go through that. Um, We're not going to get through all of it. I I had a feeling this might happen because the topic that we've been talking about is a very important one. Please. Under that modern Israel, Mm -hmm. it means eternal life. Yeah, I am so glad you brought that out because I was going to go into the next section and I'd mark that sentence. I said, I really got to say that. So say it again real loud. It means eternal life to keep the Sabbath holy unto the Lord. Exactly. But if you were to take that out of the context of the paragraph, you might come out with the idea that, okay, I keep it because that'll earn my way to heaven. But it's clear that it's in the context of sanctification process. And that's why it's an issue of eternal life. Thank you so much for bringing that out. I, I, uh, I did want to point that part of it out. I'm going to not spend a lot of time in the next section, but I am going to hit a couple of highlights here. The command, I mean the command, the plagues are an interesting study in themselves. 
He brings out some fascinating points here in relationship to uh, what these plagues were doing. And you may have studied some of this a little bit on your own, but I'll hit a few of the highlights along the way. The first thing, of course, is there's a connection with the fact that there were plagues that were the mark just before the people were freed out of Egypt just as there will be plagues just before God's people are freed at the end of time. And the main point that he, I wouldn't say the main point, one of the main points that he makes in relationship to these plagues is that these plagues were directly, um, were directed at the gods of Egypt, right? And, you know, he, they had several gods, so you had to have several plagues to be able to deal with all those, all those gods and be able to work through all of that. But God had an answer for the problems that were going on. God was being challenged by Pharaoh, right? When Moses came there and met with Pharaoh, I mean, yeah, Moses came there and met with Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, who is God? So that was a direct challenge. You know what? I'm the God around here. I don't know about who this God is, but I'm the God around here, and we're going to do things my way. And in essence, here's the issue. God had an answer to that. And he said, you know, sometimes some of the best learned lessons are the ones that are acted out. And that's, that was what was going on here. And so it was a challenge, if you please. It was a challenge to the whole issue of, um, of who was really God. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 7. And let's kind of put this in a little bit of framework, biblical framework here. Exodus chapter 7. And we are looking at verse 8. Before they get into the real heat of battle, so to speak, in this battle between gods, there is an initial opportunity for Pharaoh to say, wait a minute, maybe I ought to, you know, kind of count my, count my challenges here and see whether this one's really worth it. It's the first miracle that uh, is worked in the situation. And Aaron takes his rod. And in verse 9, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. Okay? So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and that's exactly what they did. Aaron cast his rod down in verse 10 and Pharaoh and his servants do the same thing because they're trying to copy the Satan. He can, you know, he can make you see what he wants to see. We already know that. We were warned in, uh, we are warned by Paul that he comes as an angel of light, right? He's no angel of light, but he can make himself look like one when he wants to look like one. And so they go ahead and they do this. And then in verse 12, every man would drew, uh, threw down his rod and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. I love that. Isn't that a great, great situation? Satan thought he had it, thought he'd got it there, thought Aaron and Moses would be scared by those snakes, those non-snakes, because <laughs> they really weren't snakes. They probably were some illusion that he'd created, whatever. No, they might have been, no, he couldn't create snakes, so it had to be an illusion. 
Verse 13, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and did not see them. So now God is trying to work here. And in this environment, he's trying to give Mo, uh, Aaron, I'm sorry, Pharaoh an opportunity to respond, right? Wouldn't it have been a whole different story if Pharaoh had responded right then and said, wow, uh, Moses, I mean, I get it. You know, my, my, my uh, magicians here, all they could do is put down snakes there, but your snake just ate a... I mean, look, I'm not going to mess with a god with that kind of power. Uh, no, that isn't the way the story played out at all. And so as we look at the rest of this, and I uh, encourage you again to read this whole uh, chapter on your own, but let me bring out a couple of interesting scenarios here. I'm not going to look at every one of the plagues. Uh, you're familiar with the plagues. You memorized them as kids, those of you who grew up in either a Christian church or an Adventist church. But the third plague is an interesting, he's got some interesting points here, so I just want to notice it. Notice how he says mosquitoes. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I'll buy that. <laughs> you know, I, I just a gnat, that eh, worry me. I mean, even if there are a lot of them. But if it's a beastly bug that can bite or do something, and he points out a number of different ones here, but it might have been a mosquito, I don't know. But um, they, the... What's that? Oh, yeah, tell me about it. I, I agree. It's really interesting to see that. You know, I went out in my backyard a year or two ago, and, and I'd seen mosquitoes in my backyard before. But there, this one mosquito, I think he landed on me, and I looked at that mosquito, and I said, what in the world is that thing? It was one of these huge things that has stripes on it. You seen those? And I thought, man. Anyway, okay, let's keep going. He, he just is, he's pointing out that I thought that was kind of an interesting scenario in relationship to that particular uh, plague. But then he points out there, um, a little far, it says, blow, blow at idolatry. He said, this plague was a severe blow to Egyptian idolatry, for while it lasted, no act of worship could be performed. No one could approach the altars of Egypt upon which so impure an insect harbored uh, and so impure an insect harbored, and the priests, to guard against the slightest risk of contamination, wore only lined garments and shaved their heads and bodies every day. And so it, it actually, God is working here, not just bringing punishment on, but he's calling attention to the fact that these gods are not gods, and that they have no power, and that he's in control and in charge of what's happening here. And during the first three plagues, you know that those plagues all fell on everybody. They were universal plagues. God's people uh, experienced those plagues as well as the, the others did. But when you get down to the fourth plague, and now I'm on page, I think, 28, the section, Israel Protected. Beginning with the fourth plague, the land of Goshen was severed from the rest of Egypt and Israel was protected. Now, folks, I really want you to catch this piece because there's a false theology going around out there today. Fortunately, it hasn't really made its way into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but it's pervasive in Protestantism, and that is the theory of the rapture, and that the rapture is teaching says that God's people are going to be taken away from this earth so that they won't have to go through the plagues, Right? But nowhere in scriptures do you ever find that kind of a scenario. God does not 
take his people away from the earth to spare them from the plagues. But he can protect them when the plagues are going on and separate them from that. God is able to do that. And there's a reason why there are seven last plagues. That's part of this whole scenario and this whole issue of what God is trying to do here. All right, let's keep going. Um, by the way, there's a quote there from uh, Ellen White, there, but I'm not going to go into that right now. I'm just about out of time. In the fifth plague, he points out that this one was a plague that uh, struck the cattle and uh, the bulls, and he says that they worship the sacred bull Apis and the calf um, Nemesis. And uh, that was, or ne I can't even pronounce that word, Nemesis. But anyway, those were another one of their gods, and he's striking against that. And that, that situation continues along the way. In the sixth plague, he makes this observation. Before he, just before the seventh plague is mentioned, he talks about this act of Moses in sprinkling the ashes toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh indicated that the plague came as the result of the cruel bondage which consumed the Israelites in the furnace of affliction. Just interesting parallels that he's drawing out from here and some of the Im 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 interesting details that he talks about in terms of the connection with ashes and, and all of that. The furnace, fire is a great cleanser of disease, right? And you would expect the ashes to, because it's a great cleanser of disease, uh, fire is, you would expect the ashes that come out of that to be pure, Instead, God takes those ashes and creates disease out of it. It's part of this whole scenario of what God is doing to help people to realize what's there. Okay, you can look at the rest of them about the other uh, plagues that come on, the connection with their gods and all of that. But near the end of this chapter, just before there's a list of seven last plagues, are you with me? That would probably be page 32. Is that correct? Okay. So on page 32, there's the list of those plagues. There's a quotation from, Gen, uh, from uh, Great Controversy there, and I want to share that with you, point that out. The plagues upon Egypt, when God was about to deliver Israel, were similar in character to those more terrible and extensive judgments which are to fall upon the world just before the final deliverance of God's people. God is helping us to realize that He has a plan and a purpose and a direction for us. Um, he does make the note in here, and it's an interesting one, I'd never thought of it before, that these are the seven last plagues. I've always connected that with the ten plagues and the fact that they were um, there were seven plagues at the end, and that was the connection. But he points out that they must have been plagues uh, there must be plagues before this, but these are the last seven before the world comes to an end. I, th I like that point. I, I think that's true because look around you, okay? I mean, they're trying to decide really seriously, are we going to have this uh, Olympics event? I mean, that plague is has gotten everybody's attention. I mean, the doctors have reacted to this in an amazing way. Zika or Zyko, however you say this, this, this mosquito-borne that like you brought out, what mosquitoes are doing today, and all the kinds of things that are, are connected with that. Yes, challenges. There are plagues that are going on. Ebola, Ebola and all these other things that are happening. But there are going to be seven last plagues 
just before God comes. They will be the judgments upon the earth. And that is rapidly coming towards us. We're living in these last days just before he returns. And then the last thing he points out in this chapter is he points out the fact that these plagues have a reason. These plagues have a person, a purpose, and that is to lead people to confession, to lead people. It's on uh, page 33, and uh, under uh, the test of the true God, and then the plagues cause confession. And I, I, just a reminder here, this confession does not lead to salvation. You with me? It's not the confession that leads to salvation. Remember, God, in the very end, after the thousand years, all knees will bow and worship Him, right? But at this particular time, these last plagues are the judgment. These last plagues take place after the close of probation. This is the end of it. This is, this is the last, um, last of those things there. And they bring about a confession, but not a confession that leads to salvation. Just a recognition of God is God, and He's in charge. Well, we're out of time. I was going to get into the midnight deliverance. I'll come to that tomorrow. I think that's a very critical point here, and we'll get into the midnight deliverance tomorrow. I'd like to suggest that you bring these back with you tomorrow because of that, because I'm not, I will have a new section for you, but I do want to do the midnight deliverance before we uh, get into the next part that I'm going to get into. So thank you. Let's bow our heads for prayer as we conclude today. Father in heaven, how grateful we are to know that Jesus is coming again. We know this world is ripe for judgment. You even said that the judgment hour has come. We live in that time, and it is the time just before Jesus returns. We know that there will be some very literal judgments and the plagues that will come upon this earth. But we do not live in fear of those because we are being sanctified, because we've given our hearts to Jesus and we give our hearts again to Him every day. And we're asking that you will continue the sanctifying work in us. May the Sabbath continue its sanctifying work in us. May your Holy Spirit continue His sanctifying work in us, that we might indeed be ready when Jesus comes. As we go our way into the rest of this afternoon, go with us, bless us, and we thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.